Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. My guest today is Robert H., who got sober when he was just 13 after a brief but vicious struggle with alcoholism and hard drug addiction. Twenty-two years later, he's a living testament to what long-term recovery in AA can mean for those who get sober young. Robert's family tree was infested with alcoholism, so his life seemed predestined to the ravages of the disease. Fortunately, his parents and grandfather were active members of AA, and they intervened early before they would have lost him to booze and hallucinogens. Miraculously, treatment and an alternative peer group took hold in his young life. He soon found himself sitting alongside his father and grandfather in a men's AA meeting, where I first met him. Though his father struggled with multiple relapses through the years, Robert never stopped working his AA program. Incentivized by his grandfather's promise of a fully paid college tuition, Robert took the skills and maturity he had learned from AA into his higher education. He ultimately earned a Ph.D., launching a 17-year career in the field of addiction and mental health that encompasses private practice, clinical supervision, and the creation and management of clinical programming. He still credits AA with this gift and others in sobriety, including a loving wife and four children, close friends, and a spiritual practice that keeps him centered on helping others. With such a busy and fulfilling life, Robert still makes time for the very same basics he learned early in AA when he was barely a teenager. Meetings, sponsorship, fellowship, and prayer continue to serve him and are models for others seeking long-term sobriety in AA. Robert is one of many AA members I've known from the first days of their sobriety, watching him grow into a man of integrity, intention, and purpose, while staying sober has been a blessing for me and countless others. His story is remarkable in many ways, but absolutely epitomizes the impact AA can have for those who want what we have, young and old. It's a story you'll likely want to listen to more than once. So please lend your attention for the next hour and ten minutes to my excellent friend and AA brother, Robert H. I'm Robert, and I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Robert. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview this morning. I know you're a busy guy with a lot of different stuff going on, but I knew when I ran into you at that fundraising luncheon or breakfast that we went to that I wanted to do an interview with you because your story is so captivating and interesting. And my relationship with your family goes back a really long way because in my early years of sobriety, Mm -hmm. I was going to a men's meeting which is where I first met you, but this is years before you, uh, with your granddad, Lou. It was wonderful. And the the thing I remember about Lou the best was he always used to ask me while my kids were little, when I'd see him walking in, he'd say, how those little ones, how those kiddos? And it was such a nice, just nice, sweet thing to say. Mm -hmm. And then over the years, your dad started to go to that meeting. And then all of a sudden, one day you show up and you're like this kid. Do you remember those first meetings? And can you tell me about what it was like uh, coming in with your dad and, and your granddad both in the same room? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, Howard, I have to say this is really special. It's really special to be talking to you this morning. I was just talking, you know, right before bed with my 
wife about my grandfather. You know, he passed away recently, passed away on Good Friday this year. So it's a relatively recent loss for us, but he continues to be such an important part of my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what, what you were describing was three generations of our family in the same meeting. Yeah. It was amazing to sit there like that. It really was. And, and in those early days, I thought these are all a bunch of old guys, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but, but I didn't have that sort of snotty irreverence for it. I think there was a part of me that felt like these are old guys and I don't quite fit, but there was this kind of magic to it. Like I felt like I was being led into the secrets of what men, real men did, which was come together, share intimately, be there for one another. Mm -hmm. I saw real struggle and I saw real success. And I think it fundamentally shaped me. I mean, that particular group was my you know, what I would call my home group for years and th- for, for many years, three generations of my family were in that meeting. I often wondered what it must have been like for you to grow up with a dad and a granddad who had been in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and what do you remember from when you were a kid about AA that might have influenced you in later years? Well, the story goes even before that. So, so my mother sobered up in 78. So my mother is also sober. Um, my parents met in AA. And my parents, and they'd be the first to say this, zero business being together. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was a terrible, <laughs> terrible match, you know. But out of that union came me, and I'm glad for that. And and But my mom stayed sober. My dad, um, you know, has had a long and, and storied history with recovery. But um, I always tell him one of the greatest gifts he's given me is um, two things, really. One, um, the gift of perseverance, right? I've really seen him persevere through a lot of struggle over the years and mm-hmm. um, and to overcome it, which is uh, amazing. And then the other piece is that he really taught me that it was okay to be in touch with my feelings. Mm. And uh, that's what having several generations of recovery preceding me really afforded me was I didn't grow up with those kind of messages of like, it, it's not okay to cry. That's not what it is to be a man. And all these kind, all the kind of BS that most men have to actually overcome in the early parts of their recovery where they go like, man, maybe those messages and expectations from my childhood were all kind of mm, bogus. And <laughs> maybe, maybe there's something else to this whole thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I have vivid memories of crawling under seats in A meetings, playing GI Joes. Um, as a kid, I, I would go to the Lake Whitney uh, retreats um, there'd be all these bikers there. Uh, you know, it's like, a, you know, it was a, it was an interesting childhood in that way. So it, in many ways, I, I think I was absolutely, I mean, for so many reasons, destined to be, uh, you know, in, in that program, mm-hmm. but, um, my, my associations to it were all quite positive. I was in Alatots and Alateens and mm-hmm. all that, um, those, those programs, which you did, I, I don't feel like we have a lot of those around anymore. We don't get it. We don't have a ton of those meetings, but so I think it was very much um, Alcoholics Anonymous was a was an important part of family life uh, growing up and somehow it still became alcoholic. You know. (laughs) Well, that yeah, that's one of the things I wanted to ask about. So you are in the mental health field yourself today, quite successful in the in the therapeutic community when it comes to both mental health issues and addiction. And then you've helped an awful lot of people. Looking back as a guy who's got all of the training and qualifications and everything that you know from your experience in that particular field, 
How would you look at your childhood with all of this AA surrounding you and still predict that that kid would end up as an alcoholic or addict? How does that happen? It's a great question. Um, I think it can best be answered by looking at, and I've, and I've talked about this before, but I don't know that I've ever talked about it on a podcast, so so this will be the first time it's recorded. Um, mm-hmm. there, there's a process in, in our field, uh, something that people study a lot of, which is called Adverse Childhood Experiences, ACEs. And there's there's like 14 questions on this Adverse Childhood Experiences test, if you will, survey. And, it, you know, it's, it's related to things like divorce and loss and um, neglect and abuse. Mm-hmm. incarceration of a parent, you know, or family member, like just a whole, whole host of kind of like all the stuff that could go wrong, <laughs> the adverse childhood experiences. So I max that scale out, right? I'm like uh-huh. 14 for 14 on that. <laughs> oh, <gee whiz>. Okay, <laughs> Seriously, that's not a Why? joke. I, I take it and I have all of them. And this is the resilient side. There's, there's a test that looks at um, factors for resiliency. Mm-hmm. All of those resiliency factors, right? All the things that kind of, you know, you had somebody who knew, who you knew, loved you, you understood you were cared for, like, there are all these resiliency factors. Mm-hmm. I have all of those, hmm. right? So I max out that scale on resiliency factors, too. So I... I think that's where AA comes in. Um, Because I have a multi-generational family in recovery, we have addiction really, really bad. It goes really deep in our family. It goes, my my other grandfather on my mom's side got sober in 68, and he he recently passed in the last couple of years, but died sober and has this really storied history of helping people in East Texas and being just a wonderful person in recovery. So we have all of that kind of like the resiliency side. Yeah. But all the things that predicate needing it, which was terrible addiction that runs in the family. So it was like destined to be. But my run was short and fast and hard and steep. And then the recovery has been really long. And thankfully, uh, I wouldn't say uneventful. It's not uneventful, but I would say it's been pretty meaningful. I have a really meaningful life. I want to talk about some of that stuff in a little while. I want to have you address, if you wouldn't mind, the misperception that may be out there amongst people, because I know I've sat in meetings before and I've had sponsees before who said, geez, I wish my parents had been in AA. My life would have been so much different. And the erroneous assumption that somehow over time, generations of AA are, are going to not only decrease, but at some point expunge alcoholism from the family. Obviously, you and I both know that's not true. But to me, like the the hope going in is, boy, if I can stay sober, my kids will have that much a better life. And it completely ignores all of the other things on that ACE factor. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. What would you tell people about that? Yeah, I would I would definitely say it th- that is yeah. erroneous. <laughs> there, there's not in no way, shape or form does your parents getting sober eradicate the risk for trauma, loss or other difficulties. Um, I think what it did do is that it gave us the ability to speak the same language eventually. Mm-hmm. That once I entered recovery, we all spoke the language of recovery and and our communication changed over time right our ability to use the program and to use the language of recovery the steps and all that come with it um to really think through and apply to our family life and i understand the wish in that right like the wish is would your alcoholic parents have been better parents if they'd gotten sober yeah probably 
Um, but it wouldn't have eradicated all of the other things because life is going to happen. Life is going to happen. And it also fundamentally misunderstands. I think that that kind of mythology fundamentally misunderstands the way addiction works, which is that you've got a genetic vulnerability. And if you have the right environmental stressors and you, you may take, you know, if your family's sober, you may take that out as environmental stressor, but it's not going to take away all the other environmental stressors that that are yeah. life. And so when you have that mix of environmental stress and, and genetic vulnerability, you've got the perfect storm for addiction and the onset of addiction. So that makes a lot of sense, too. When you were a, a little kid, what was going on in your house that may have predicted that you, when you were given the first opportunity to use or drink or escape, would do so with drugs or alcohol? There was definitely abuse, um, and, and, and it was physical abuse that was happening at the hands of my stepfather. So I had a stepdad in the picture who was terribly physically mm. abusive. The children were separated from the family at one point, you know, had to kind of escape in the middle of the night uh, in a group home. There's a lot of CPS involvement at different times in my life. And then, and I've talked about this in other places, and my mom and I have talked about it a great deal, but, but she suffered a postpartum psychosis. And while she stayed sober, which is remarkable, she's one of the most resilient and loving people you've ever met. There, there were times where she was quite unwell. Thankfully, she wasn't using um, because her her drug addiction was 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 terrible, and I never had to see that, which was which was wonderful, such a gift. Mm -hmm. So she was um, in real struggle with uh, mental health and and just biological things happening. And then my father had gone back out, and so there was use. And then I had a stepfather that was abusive. So mm. I mean, you probably start yeah. to get the picture there. And so Lou, in fact, this is where you know Lou and at the time his wife, my who I really grew up with as my grandmother, grandparents. Um, and funny thing about Lou is that he's actually my dad's stepdad, which most people don't know. And I recently encountered this song um, by Benjamin Todd after Lou died that's called We Ain't Even Kin. Uh. <laughs> and he talks about growing up with a grandfather who isn't really his kin. And when people say, you have this likeness to your grandfather, he goes to correct him. But the grandfather <laughs> says, no, no, there's no need. You're yeah, my kin. I, I like that. And that was my relationship with, with Lou. So, and, and that's because my blood grandfather on that side, my paternal grandfather, actually died of alcoholism. Oh. I mean, he um, alcohol and barbiturates in, in Singapore, of mm -hmm. all places. And I learned more about that because he died in 1970, I suppose. And mm -hmm. when you have to repatriate the body, there's all sorts of paperwork that goes with that, repatriating the body of American citizen. And so, so there was a lot of documentation on his death and what happened. And he was um, a brilliant mm -hmm. man a geophysicist and, and a terrible alcoholic. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there was intergenerational transmission of trauma and, and loss and suffering. Um, so even though my mother maintained sobriety, there was a lot of disruption within the home. My stepdad was, you know, all of these, these pieces were factors. Yeah. And so when I had that first drink, my very first drink was with my father. Was it? Yeah, I was eight years old. That was during one of his intervals, right? Yeah. I remember your dad when he was going through that. There was one point where he had 11 years. And man, he was like the paragon of, re of young guy recovery at that time. 
and uh, everybody was just shocked whenever it was uh, he, he went out. And when he went out, he would just disappear for a while, and we went and see him, and everybody wondered, where is he? So w- it, with the exception of the times that he came back and put together some years, it was always tough to know. But it came to the point where yeah. whenever he wasn't there for a sufficiently long period of time, we could assume we knew what happened. And I don't know if that was the case all the time or not. But yeah. So during one of these intervals, I guess, he and you had the opportunity to share a beer. Yeah. Well, my first drink was was sake. Um, oh, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> he pushed a thing of sake over and he said, I bet I bet you couldn't do that. And I said, I bet I can. Wham. One of the kind of foundational kind of educational concepts is substance abuse is a preventable illness, right? You like addiction is preventable. Um, if you don't use, you won't be an addict. My brother, for example, and I'm the oldest of five, I have three sisters and a brother. Uh-huh. My brother, like me, four kids married, um, lives in, in rural Iowa on some land there and has never drank ever period ever in his life at all. Wow. <laughs> never drank. And guess what? He's not an alcoholic. (laughs) Now, I have the feeling, given who his father is, Uh which was my stepdad and his mother, and his 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 dad was also alcoholic. Yeah. And was in in sobriety, although quite unwell, Mm -hmm. because not using is is not. Yeah, right. It's not not sober. That's the minimum requirement (laughs) for entry. It does not mean. A low bar. (laughs) Yeah, it does not mean you've done the other work of of taking good care of yourself and and recovery. But I think if my brother used today, he'd be alcoholic. Hmm. I, I believe that just given the nature of who he is, who his parents are. But he doesn't drink and therefore he doesn't have addiction. Hmm. Right. And I got introduced to it early and it was like, this is, I mean, it's like everybody, every, if every alcoholic will tell you that first drink experience, no matter how awful, I mean, they could be like, I puked on myself and blacked out and they were like, and it was, yeah, it was, it was couldn't wait to do it again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't wait to do it again. And, and I, and I couldn't, I couldn't wait to do it again. I was so, and I went hard and fast into it, you know, was there ever a time that you looked back on that very first experience with any resentment towards your your dad pushing that little glass of sake across the table to you? Um, no, I, I've never. Uh, there's been plenty of things I've resented my father sure. for. Don't get me wrong, but but that that's not one of them. Actually, I've never felt resentful about that, or never thought that it was he who started you on that path. Well, yeah, I I think I would have found it anyway. I think undoubtedly uh, that that would have been the case. I think I should say that my brother doesn't drink because he saw me drink. Okay. Yeah. You know, I'm five years older and he watched this train wreck occur in front of him and he went, oh, my God, if that's what it looks like. Never, never. I I think I would have found it regardless um, as relates to my dad and and that whole process would have thought a Mm -hmm. lot. You know, being that I have four kids with a fifth one on the way, I have four girls and a fifth baby. It'll be a surprise. We'll find out in uh, late late August. Congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I know. It's it's pretty great. So when my oldest, Anna, who's now about to be, well, she'll be 10 in the fall. Mm-hmm. I remember when she hit eight and I thought, oh, my God, <laughs> that that is crazy. What was going on? that that was like an idea Mm -hmm. (laughs) that, you know, 
because it's just so unfathomable. But but that's the benefit of being, you know, in August, I'll have, you know, God willing, I'll have 23 years. And that's the benefit of long-term recovery is that all of that looks great. What's your sobriety date? 831.99. You know, what you just said about your daughter is something I've thought about a lot, too, as my kids have gotten older. Of course, my kids are all in their early 30s by now. But uh, when they were the ages, those early ages, I tried as soon as I could when they were of the age of understanding, they're very close in age, to sit them down together and to talk about what alcoholism is and everything else. But you were talking about that that sense of looking at your kids and thinking about them at your age. Yes. Yeah. I have that experience a lot where I look at them and I'll think, wow, they are having such different lives. And every now and then, and I refrain from doing it, but every now and then I want to go, you know, when they're complaining or something, I want to go, do you know how good you've got it? You know, like this is, but, but, but it would be totally invalidating of their felt experience in that yeah. moment. So I, I've got to refrain from them. Yeah. But really and truly it's, I mean, they have a different life. And I would say that's not, and I want to be really clear about this. That's not because of me. That's because of the, I'm reaping the benefits of the fact that two generations before me in my family system, people started to change and yeah. they started to do the really, really difficult work mm -hmm. of, of change. And in that process, what I get to be the beneficiary of is being the third generation, carrying that into a fourth generation. And my kids are reaping the benefits of the fact that my grandparents stayed sober and cut a path for um, mm -hmm. my parents to come into recovery. And my parents did the really difficult work of kind of um, addressing a lot of trauma and a lot of difficult uh, things in their histories that allowed us to be able to do the work of what what is kind of the work of my generation, which I, I see in part as having a lot of stability in the home um, yeah. that just wasn't part of the picture before. And recognizing certain things about the relationship between parents and children that my folks never had the benefit of having and that I didn't necessarily have the benefit of knowing when I was first starting to have children. Having children terrified me. The idea of having kids terrified me. Whenever my wife and I were getting ready to, or we're at the point in our marriage a year and a half, two years in, where she says, well, let's, let's start a family. And I was terrified by the idea because I knew that the only parenting skills I had innately were those inherited from two very, very sick parents and I'm talking sick, mentally ill parents. But somewhere along the way, it might have been my sponsor, it might have been somebody else, it might have been a guy like your granddad, Lou, pulled me aside and said, look, you know, you've relinquished the control and manageability of your life over to a power greater than yourself. Can you believe that he is their higher power, will be their higher power? Uh, can God do for them what he's done for you? And I had to answer that question in the affirmative. That made things a little bit easier, but it, it still was a very scary thing to do. What was that like for you when you had your first kids? Did you ever give thought to that sort of thing? Yeah, without a doubt. In fact, I had a lot of this. I was relating a lot to what... Um, to what you said, and it's a story that I've told before, but it's an important one for me. So we were about the same, you know, year and a half, two years into marriage and wanted to start a family. Both of us wanted a large family. You know, we came in saying we want at least four. My wife's one of four. I'm one of five. I thought, you know, we want, we want a big family. So, yeah. so we knew we were going to kind of get started. So we wanted that. Both of us really wanted that. And then it came time to like, all right, let's, you know, let's start trying for kids. And this fear came over me this kind of like 
oh my gosh i mean what if you know all the what if this what if that what if oh, this yeah. what if that and i have a sponsor who likes to say you know if you're going to pray why worry and if you're going to worry, worry why pray, why pray. yeah <laughs> <laughs> um he likes that one so what happened was i had a really honest conversation with my wife and i said i'm really terrified and one of the things i was terrified of actually to be quite honest was was a little bit more even selfish than what if something terrible happens with the kids or we you know they have these these same afflictions or whatever right it was actually like i i didn't want to have one of those kind of loveless marriages where kids got in the way of your ability to i, I really love my wife and i really didn't want the this really special thing that we had and our love to be kind of diminished by family if you could imagine so i was mm -hmm. it was one of the things i was scared of because you you hear it and you see it that, that folks end up in this kind of loveless marriage and i thought oh i do not want that that's the last thing i want and i'm really terrified right and i shared that with my wife and her being wise and wonderful said something that i will never forget she said children can't divide love isn't divisible Oh, that's beautiful. She said, basically, when when you're loving the children, you're loving me. And when I'm loving the children, I'm loving you because they're half of you. Huh. And so our loving our children will only make more love, right? Because love isn't wow. divisible. It, it, love only multiplies. That's just beautiful. I love that. And I'm going to remember that for a long time. Yeah. Well, thank you. And, and it was, I'm glad that it, it struck you in the same way it that it did. did me. It was powerful. It was moving and, and it, and it has never left me. And it's actually what informs my therapeutic work with people too. I hear this term in our field about compassion fatigue. And I say, if you are fatigued, it is not compassion. Yeah. That it, <laughs> compassion is not a pie that's spit down, divvied up. And, and once the slices are gone, it's gone. It's a thing that multiplies. So Compassion is a multiplier. Love is a multiplier. They're never divisible. Mm -hmm. If you're feeling worn out, overwhelmed, tired, then you're probably trying to arrange life to suit yourself in a way that is not about love and compassion, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the basic text of AA says that, right? It says, yeah. you know, we, we burn up energy foolishly trying to arrange life to suit ourselves. So, so basically, that's become not only a mantra for our family, but probably has, has been one of the things that's informed my work with patients more than anything else. I'll bet. And you, you are so blessed to have such a wise wife. She is. My wife was kind of the same way. And of course, she grew up in an atmosphere of uh, alcoholism where her dad was in and out of AA, mostly out and died out of the program. And But what she gained from that was this, the, this wisdom that whenever it was, I said the same thing to her that you said to your wife. She said, oh, you know, you're not going to be the only person involved in, in being there for the children. And that kind of eased the burden because I was thinking, oh, man, this is all on me. But then I had to remember, hold on a second. I'm just half of the equation here. And I can look back and say, my kid's generation in this family has it better than I had it. And I had it better than my parents had it because I know their story. And from the abject abuse and horrible things that happened generations ago has become this generation that I'm very, very hopeful about. And yeah. Uh, yeah. so it's a, it's a really beautiful way to look at it. Yeah.
Let's uh, rewind just a little bit here because you had such a short career uh, as a active uh, alcoholic. It was long enough. At what point did you get involved in seeking out alcohol and or drugs? I think that was pretty immediate. I mean, that, right. that was like once the first drink was set in motion, it was like it was immediate. I was uh, stealing alcohol where I could. Mm-hmm. Started smoking when I was eight, so stealing that then being in an apartment complex you can run around with older kids and they're smoking weed and they're doing you know and then pretty quickly i mean one of the things that i uh experienced early on was was hallucinogens too and i Mm. I would say that was my Mm -hmm. drug of choice i i really i liked the feeling of kind of altering consciousness probably what i liked was that you could alter your perceived sense of reality because mine was like at times pretty abysmal and so i i wanted that to be different i think i would be remiss if i didn't say the other thing that was an interesting piece of course a saved my life and and 12-step recovery there was another life-saving thing that happened for me too that was in the midst of all this and it kind of intersected this mm-hmm. so some of my longest term friends in recovery are people that i grew up with one guy in particular that i grew up playing hockey with and we used together mm-hmm. And he got sober after me, Chris C., you might know. And he's now in Dallas, although he's moving back here. But he'd taken a job there and stayed sober and done really well. And he's just amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was like one of my best childhood friends, uh, Austin P. You know, our, our parents sobered up together in the late late 70s, early 80s. Our mothers were like best friends pregnant with us at the same time. You guys look like brothers, too, when you were growing up. We do. <laughs> yeah. Literally, like like carbon copies. It was beautiful. <laughs> I look more like his brother than his brother does. That's the funny thing, because he and I look more like twins. <laughs> and his brother is, is built totally differently. Like he's like long and lean and we're kind of like medium built. <laughs> And so I look a lot like Austin. Yeah. So all of those people that were, you know, Austin's another one of those examples of somebody who used like hard and fast and went down quick um, Mm -hmm. and then sobered up early and then stuck, you know, like really stayed the course. And all of the work of recovery really um, shaped kind of the experience that he's having, too. So anyway, my Mm -hmm. point in that is it was hard and fast, but simultaneously to the addiction, there were these relationships that were being fostered and they have been some of the most important and powerful and shaping relationships that I've had over the course of my adult life and they began right there in the midst of that were you all were doing the same things together you were all using and drinking together Chris and I were Austin and I were not we what was kind of cool and we've we've reflected on this at times that Um, What was really cool about our relationship is that we were really, really close as kids. Like, I I thought he was my cousin till I was like 13. And then I realized that Mm -hmm. his mom wasn't actually my mom's sister. And I I was like, wait a second. (laughs) He's not really my cousin. But like, I grew up really feeling like he's my cousin. And then I started using, like when I was using, I wasn't using with him. It was like this, it was Uh was kept apart. And then when he was using, Mm -hmm. we never hung out because I had sobered up. And so Mm. we always talk about how addiction never poisoned the relationship. We have like these really fond childhood memories of like connection and being together. And then we have like recovery together. Yeah. Yeah. Like two different lives. Yeah. Yeah. We kind of skipped all the trauma in the middle, um, though we share about that as a function of recovery. So anyway, it's just interesting. Um, And I think that's probably the most 
the biggest protective factor around recovery. If there was one thing that I could say, like, you know, you hear all these adages like meeting makers make it and yeah. all that stuff. And I think meetings yeah. are super important, but I think meeting makers make meetings. I think the people who make it and what's useful about meetings is that it is that it facilitates what I'm about to say, which is the people who make it have real and meaningful relationships. That's who makes it. That's like right. long-term recovery, that's who makes it. Yeah, so it's like stick with the winners Exactly. And those are the people that, that generally are going to meetings. <laughs> Not always, but generally. And they're the same people that have the relationship to a sponsor. It's not that the sponsor is some sage guru, although sometimes they've got sage wisdom from their experience. It's that mm -hmm. the sponsor, the mentor, is a relationship with whom you can feel safe and secure in sharing the most intimate parts of your life with. So that's who makes it. it mm -hmm. It's the people who get connected and it's the most protective factor. Going back to that ACEs thing we talked about earlier, the adverse childhood experiences. Uh -huh. If you fast forward and you look at adverse childhood experiences over the life course. So on one axis, you've got adverse childhood experiences. On the other axis, you've got comorbid health conditions over the life course. And I'm talking diabetes, heart disease, depression, substance use, all of it medical as well as behavioral health. As you might imagine, the more adverse childhood experiences one has, the more comorbid health conditions they have over the life course. And the only factor, and this comes from the researcher Bruce Perry, the people who have literally either double their risk factor for illness over the life course or cut their risk factor in half, the one determinant factor in that is relationships. Mm -hmm. People who have a poverty of relationships are far more at risk. I mean, they're they're 12 times more likely to have heart disease. They're four times more likely to have diabetes, mm -hmm. substance use out the wazoo, you know, depression and anxiety, all of these kind of health conditions. People who have strong social relationships, strong ties to people, cut their risk factor for illness in half. It's wild. You had kind of that organic experience with these friends of yours as you were coming in and able to have these strong, strong relationships. Now, you came in at what, four, uh, was it 14? 13. Okay, because I remember your dad in the final days, he was really beside himself. I don't think he knew what to do as he was moving on and uh, with you, I guess. We heard, I got to hear about you before I ever met you. <laughs> This is a very short trajectory, but it's it's one that I know is chock full of all kinds of interesting things. Can you walk us through the point at which you were using to the point that it got out of control to the point at which you finally made it to AA? Yeah, well, I, I think it's important to say that I came in kicking and screaming that left my own devices, I'd still be out there today. I think you have to look no further than the people in the generations that came before me. They stayed out a lot longer, but they also didn't have the intervention that I did. Um, so the reason I sobered up young and the reason my dad sobered up young, for example, was that my grandfather was in recovery. Like my grandfather intervened in a way that, that brought him into the fold of recovery early on. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word for word, cover to cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. 
And we're back. Intervention is such an active step for people to take. It's such a overt approach to trying to help somebody versus the leave them alone, let them hit their own bottom, let them find it on their own. Obviously, your granddad was much more proactive and your dad was much more proactive, but that is a dichotomy, is it not? Yeah. Let them be versus intervene. Sure. And there's a lot that's been written about and said about this, you know, um, I'm of two minds about it. Um, I can tell you that the, the kind of antiquated notion of intervention is really, well, it's antiquated. It's sort of a thing of the past, although it still happens. Yeah. That's the what, what you think of as the classic Johnson model intervention. That's, you know, lock them in a room, catch them by surprise, all that kind of stuff. I want to say this to all the interventionists who might listen. There's a time and a place for that. That's super important. Doing that type of that style of intervention will fundamentally save a person's life. Absolutely. There are other times mm-hmm. where it will poison the well, where you really get in the way of their ability to even seek help. And that's this kind of delicate balance and why I suggest using trained professionals for intervention, people who are trusted, people who have a good track record, people who have a good reputation um, for how they manage intervention, because it, it shouldn't be a one size fits all. It shouldn't be, you know, because if all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I think intervention is more nuanced than that. And it's why I outsource intervention. If I have an existing relationship, I will intervene in a certain way because I, I'm, I'm part of that, you know, relationship. But <clears throat> I always talk about using and refer to a lot of outside interventionists because um, that's what they do 24-7. That is their bailiwick. And the the newer model, the newer kind of idea, and it's not so new anymore, but it is new for a lot of people because they think of the Johnson model intervention. They think of that kind of you write frothy emotional letters and you appeal to the person, but you catch them by surprise and their bags are packed and mm-hmm. they've got a ticket to go to treatment. There's a time and a place for that. The newer model is more of an invitational intervention. It's you know the Arise method or whatever. And the way that works is, hey, we're going to deal with as a family all that's going on and we're, we're prepared to look at our stuff and we're going to get together and talk about what's going on with your addiction. And we think you should be a part of that. So right. you've got a seat at the table. Um, because we're going to be making decisions that impact you. And so we'd love for you to be a part of that. So it's inclusive. It's inclusive, it's invitational, and it brings them to the table in a way that's not a surprise, that's not caught off guard, that's saying, hey, we're we're here to deal with a family disease, um, the family disease of addiction, and and we're going to tackle our part in that. And we also think you should tackle yours. And regardless of what, what you choose to do, we're going to do that. We're going to pursue recovery. We're going to get help. Yeah, which might mean Al-Anon for them down the road or CODA or whatever else it is. As he was looking at the months and years prior to this intervention that you had, what was Lou seeing in your behavior? And what was your dad seeing in your behavior that made them realize they had to intervene? Well, just all that normal stuff, you know. Uh-huh. Normal. <laughs> yeah, the, normal for an addict, all the normal stuff, you know, lying, yeah, right. deceit, manipulation. <laughs> I had contorted everything I could to fit what I needed. And, you know, I went from being a stellar student academically to being just a disaster. You know, I was I was invited to leave uh, high school. You know, I was it, it wasn't going well. You know, it, it was it went from or as my friend Will says, uh, you know, I was promoted yeah. to guest. <laughs> it was, it, it was it, yeah, it just had all the hallmark stuff that you would think of, you know, lying, manipulation, stealing, cheating, yeah. becoming reckless and undependable. All within a very concentrated period of time. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. Within a really concentrated period of time. And, um, to the extent that I was constantly under the influence of drugs or alcohol constantly by the age of 13, I Mm. was, I mean, from the time I woke up to the time I went to bed, I had one pursuit, which was, you know, find any means possible for getting enough money to secure drugs and alcohol to continue to use. Like that was the sole mm-hmm. purpose. I didn't care about anything else. I didn't care about anyone else. I didn't, you know, that was it. So what was the upshot from that with regard to your dad and your mom and let's say even your granddad? What approaches did they take to try and deal with that before they actually realized an intervention would be necessary? I think it happened so hard and fast that I think it knocked them off their feet and they didn't know what to do. And they saw this like bright and capable, really sweet and loving kid as I was just totally crater. And I, I think more than anything, they were terrified. I didn't have a lot of the anger and a lot of the, I think they were just like, oh my God, like what is happening here? And so the intervention was really kind of the first uh, thing. And I think at 13 years old, an, an intervention like mine was totally necessary. I, I think had they kind of, you know, tiptoed around things, it would have been terrible. And I'll tell you, my intervention was one of those classic ones that cannot work for a lot of people, but worked well for me. And my whole family came together and I didn't know where I was going. In fact, I was supposed to, I was on my way to buy a quarter pound of weed from school mm-hmm. and I meet a guy there and he was left holding and he was not uh, happy with me. Um, so I was showing up to buy weed and they said, well, we canceled your ride. So I would basically get picked up by a separate classman, a young woman who was sisters with a friend of mine. Uh-huh. And she would actually take us back to his house and we would just drink Everclear. So it was me and John. Um, and we would, mm-hmm. you know, just, you know, be drinking grain alcohol at seven in the morning, you know, freshman oh, year of no. high school. And they said, well, we canceled, we canceled your ride. Mandy was her name. And uh, we're taking you to school. And I went, hmm, this is not good. Um, because I'm supposed to get drunk and then, you know, get some drugs. And I remember I had acid on me and I was like, oh crap, what am I supposed to do with this? And cause I, we, we started going and I said, you know, school's the other direction. Um, school's that way. And they said, well, we're going this way. Mm-hmm. And I went, mm, where are we going? So I hid the acid in my mother's minivan. I remember that. Uh-huh. And then we get to this place and they deadbolt me in. They lock me in a room and I'm like, get me, you know, and I'm kicking, scream. I'm doing all the stuff that, and I'm like, get me out of here. This is bullshit. You know, all the, and, um, Carol did my, uh, intervention. She was a master too. She was a master at that. She saved a lot of lives. So good. So good. Because I didn't want to be there. You know, I, I think it went about as well as some, as something like that can go. Um, they drove me from there to treatment. I was kicking and screaming the whole way. And I said, well, somebody give me a cigarette. And they gave me cigarettes. And and I said, okay, well, this isn't that bad. Then, you know, I can smoke and whatever. That was one thing that was permitted, which we don't do now with adolescent treatment. We don't do it all. But but then, back then, 23 years ago, when we were smoking in Holy Name, we were smoking inside the church. I mean, people were smoking cigars inside the church. Yeah, I remember that. You know, 
I was like, all right, well, uh, they're going to let me smoke openly, so that's okay. They drove me right into treatment. I was still there kind of kicking and screaming. I remember they gave me all the consent forms for treatment, and, you know, they need your signature, and I just wrote, uh-huh. fuck you. That was, <laughs> That's what I wrote, and I threw the clipboard <laughs> at the lady, and I said, that's, you know, so I was just, you know, um, I did not want to be there. Did you have to detox? No, I mean, not in a in an acute physical sense. Um, I mean, I think I felt like not great. I, you know, drugs were easier to come by than alcohol at that age. Alcohol, you know, it's funny enough, but alcohol is like harder to get hold of because it's more regulated. So, so I was using more drugs and mm-hmm. coming off drugs, you feel really crummy. But coming off alcohol, you're subject to die. So, so you know, most people don't appreciate that. Like alcohol is still, alcohol is still yeah. king, by the way. You know, out of all the yeah, people we yeah, treated uh-huh. in inpatient residential last year, everything, you know, people think about opioids and all that. 11.5% of the people we treated last year were primary opioid users. 69.9% of the people that we treated were alcoholic, primary substance use their primary drug of choice was alcohol. It is still king by far. And that's the people who need medical detail. Yeah, it's just not mentioned as much. No, it's not. And because it's a pervasive part of the culture, it's we, we have acclimated so much to the creeping nature of alcoholism. There's a great yeah. article in The Atlantic a few months ago that I send around to people if they want to read it about the history of alcohol in this country. It's called America Has a Drinking Problem. And it's absolutely true. We are nuts. Uh-huh. Just like we have a psychosis about guns in this country, we have a psychosis about our relationship to alcohol. We think it's totally normal that every meaningful event in a person's life is like surrounds alcohol. That every sporting event, that every celebration, that every loss is demarcated by the use of alcohol. It's crazy. That is that's nuts. So here you were in this treatment. How long did you stay in there? You know, so it was um, so I was in that program for two years. It splintered off into another deal. And I went to Katie because I thought the girls the girls were cuter. And that was, I mean, that was honestly like how I was making decisions, like about where I got sober. Oh, you're, you're, you're still just a young teenager there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. It's, it, you know, the motivation around doing my first fifth step was that I, f- I found a sponsor who didn't say wait a year. He said, get through your fifth step and then you can date this. And I like this guy. This is my guy. (laughs) Yeah. I I came in kicking and screaming and to everyone's great surprise, I stayed, Uh, I stayed sober and I got well kind of in spite of myself. Um, And and that's the miracle of it. Right. Um, Is that I didn't even want it. My great plan. And I've talked about this before. My like big idea was that I would gain my parents trust back and then screw them over and take off. <laughs> that was what I didn't bargain on was how long it takes to rebuild trust. And, yeah. and in that period between, you know, faking it and trying to rebuild their trust so that I could screw them over, the truth of the whole process really sunk in and I got well, yeah. um, kind of in spite of myself. And I'll tell you one other thing about my intervention that I, I can't fail to mention mm-hmm. is is that my grandfather was there. So Lou was there. My dad, my mom, everybody, you know, aunts, uncles, the whole bit. But Lou and Valerie were there. And Lou said, he said something very important to me. And it shaped kind of my whole experience from then on. Mm -hmm. He said, if you do the right thing, I'll do the right thing. I was like, what does that mean? And what it really came to me was that if if I do the work of staying sober, 
mm-hmm. um, that he would be there, that he had my back, right? And I want to say this, it, it, he gave me a debt-free education. Mm, that's beautiful. Um, you know, I have a you know PhD, right. like he paid Everything. for wow. <laughs> my undergrad, my grad school, my PhD. Wow. Um, I, uh, <laughs> he had no obligation to do that, mm-hmm. right? And yet he was like, you're, you're doing the right thing. I'll do the right thing, you know? And what an extraordinary gesture. Oh my God. He gave me a golden ticket for my life. You know, sobriety is the basis of that. But again, that's just the, the fee for entry. And then you have to kind of show up and do the rest. And he gave me a foothold that very few people in this country have. I, I graduated without student debt and created a, a, a life as a result of that. At the time when he did that, what did you think about that? Did you attach as much importance to it at that point as you did later on? I did by the end of high school. Um, I, I mean, I think I was angry in that moment. I was angry and I was overwhelmed and I didn't want to be there and all that kind of stuff. And I wanted to keep using and I didn't want anybody to mess with that. You know, I didn't want anybody to mess with my being able to use. Uh huh. But pretty early on, I got it. You know, I mean, I was coming to those meetings like I I mean, he showed up for me and my dad showed up and my mom showed up and all the people who said that they would be there showed up. And I went through treatment for uh, a few years um, and then I continued to get, you know, to seek psychotherapy for myself, which I think is hugely valuable and doing, you know, more psychoanalytically oriented therapy work, which really opened up this um, important process for how I wanted to do psychotherapy for for myself, uh, you know, with patients. Now, was it AA from the start, oh, yeah. though? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, from the get-go. Yeah, 12 steps in AA. Yeah, I mean, I got sober and in, I mean, we didn't have that term at the time, but now we call them APGs, right? Alternative peer groups. But that APG was 12-step based and I was immediately going to the Katie Club and the there in Katie because remember the there were cuter girls at Katie High School and all this. And that was what drew me in that. I didn't even live in Katie, but I was going to meetings out there. That set you up for your own experience then in NAA. I, I wanted to take a look at that because one of the hallmarks of these interviews is that you've been sober a long time, 23 years, and a lot's happened between when you first got sober and today. So you were actually coming back into AA because you'd been coming to AA when you were a little kid, crawling under the chairs and everything, right? <laughs> yeah. So you came back. <laughs> Over the years, as you walk us down the pathway of your recovery, can you highlight some of the big changes that occurred in your life thanks to AA along the way? Sure. Yeah. I think it's probably really important to say, like, you know, and, and I talk about this in treatment with people a lot. It's a metaphor uh-huh. that I use a lot, which is that um, we're all yeah. like seeds. Um, and within the seed, uh, everything that we need and everything that we are intended to be is contained within that, right? All the code for the full measure of what we're intended to be is contained in that seed, but it can only be realized. It can only be potentiated if it's actually cracked open and buried first. And so that's the necessary wounding that use and then subsequently getting sober requires is that we we feel like we're broken, we're cracked open and we're buried into the earth. The first thing that people want to do, and I think the misnomer around sobriety is I'll get sober and everything will be great. 
No. That's a misnomer. So we should tell anybody <laughs> that's listening that's new to recovery, yeah. it gets worse before it gets better. So I had a, a colleague of mine too, so I say, um, when you get sober, you feel better. And pa- patients would go, that's bullshit. You, know, you don't feel better. And he goes, no, you feel everything better. You feel sadness better. You feel shame everything. better. You feel anger yeah. better. You feel everything better. And so you're like a raw nerve. So really, the first thing that mm-hmm. a seed does when you put it in the earth is it doesn't ascend. Right. It goes deeper. Mm-hmm. It develops a root system. So early recovery for me was the foundational constructs of, of laying these really deep relational roots in recovery. And then growth occurred. And even then, there were a lot of things that there's oh, all yeah. sorts of things that can yeah. stop growth, right? Drought. Uh, and for me, there were seasons of spiritual drought where thankfully mm-hmm. I didn't die and I didn't use, but um, there was spiritual drought where I felt like I wasn't growing and I had stagnated or I had started to really kind of not do well. I think I would want people to know that probably the most miserable I was mm-hmm. ever in my life was not at the peak of my addiction. Because remember, I was just getting started, right? So if my addiction was interrupted more than it had reached a natural conclusion. Sure. It was interrupted abruptly. So I was still on the kind of upswing of this is great, although it wasn't, obviously. And, and for lots of reasons I, I can see now it mm-hmm. was not. But in that moment, yeah. that's what it felt like. The worst I've ever felt was probably around five years sober, suicidal idea, where, where I wanted to yeah. die. And a huge part of that was the road narrowing around sobriety. I had consistent yeah. sobriety and there was a... a Tammany yeah, yeah. wrote a book called The Paper Thin Life. I'm not recommending that book. I want to be clear to anybody listening. I, it's not worth reading, but the title's catchy. I had a paper thin life. Uh-huh. On paper, my life looked really good. My resume looked really good. And inside, I felt really empty and hollow at five years sober. And it was because I had more work to do. And I think that's where we lose a lot of people in long-term recovery mm-hmm. is when they still kind of are laboring under the idea of like, well, I'm sober, so I should be feeling better. No, not really. Well, there's that expectation that you were talking about earlier. You know, we go in and we immediately raise the bar of expectations where the the prudent thing to do is to keep it low until it raises itself along the way based on on what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you what, there's a friend of ours, John Jay, who you I know you know quite well. He, like you, got sober very, very young. Yeah. And times that he and I have talked, he's brought up something kind of interesting. He said, you know, part of the challenge when you get sober that young is looking around you and actually having some sadness about the things that other people are able to do that you'll you'll never have experienced. In other words, mm-hmm. I'll never have that first drink in college experience or that sort of thing. To what extent did the lack of those experiences have in in shaping your view you know it's really interesting i don't really kind of lament that i think that people like he and i who because he sobered up similarly quite young and actually has even longer than than me he's a couple years older he's a couple years older than me i think a lot of people that sober up at our age um that young do have those regrets and yeah ultimately i think that can be this kind of gnawing idea that sets in motion a sort of chain of events for um, the justification of use later. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that about John. I, I just think I've seen that for a lot of people where they go like, you know, maybe I'm not alcoholic and I sobered up really young. Da, da, da. Okay, well, um, and I just never like... To me, that idea, like just taking that that notion for a moment, and I've had people who've, who've said this, like, 
you know, at this point, don't you think like you've, you know, you've done enough personal work and you could kind of drink without consequence and, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. And I think, first of all, you know, I've watched generations before me go back out right. and I've seen what that looks like. And so no thanks, I'm good. And I've seen him do it after long-term sobriety. So no thanks, I'm good. Uh-huh. But here's the other thing is that to risk that mm-hmm. for the idea of altering consciousness with alcohol for, you know, a handful yeah. of hours to risk everything that I've built, that in itself is an alcoholic thought. Yeah, isn't it? Only the alcoholic is willing to risk yeah. everything on that bet. Yeah. Right. He's like, you know what? I'm all in on the next drink. Like I'll risk everything in hopes that it goes well. And I'm like, no. And does that mean that I don't have alcoholism? No, I think, I think alcoholism is alive and well, and it permeates it. I think it's one of those things that like it it morphs. And this is another thing that over time, like the road gets narrower. I think why I, at five years, why I felt so miserable is that I needed, I had to address other work. I had to address other ways in which my addiction had manifested itself in the form of needing other programs or needing other support. You know, Greg, Greg M will always say, you know, I'm, I'm in this program and I'm in that program and I'm one bed away from a GA <laughs> meeting. And I'm, you know, like, and, yeah. um, and I think for people who stay sober really long term, yeah. like that's the truth. Like we're, we, we just realize that addiction is addiction is yeah, addiction yeah. and it permeates every facet of our lives. And, and we can be addicted to recovery in some ways in a way that actually stands in the way of our capacity to grow, you know, where people can kind of hide out behind recovery and the ideas of recovery and not actually grow into the full measure of who they're intended to be. Yeah. And nobody will call you on that because it's recovery. It's just like workaholics usually don't get called on their issues either because the, you know, the Puritan work ethic. Right, right, right. uh, Personified by the guy who's working 18 hours a day. That's the success story. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned earlier that you had this, I don't know, was it a crisis of faith or that higher power uh, issue for you? Did, did that rear its head at any point? Oh, sure. I think I think many times over, I think, um, first of all, I came into the program very spiritually wounded, um, where people had done things to me in the name of God. Right. And, and I had a lot of resentment about that. Yeah. Right. So I, I talk about and joke about being a recovering Baptist. Right. Uh-huh. That, you know, I grew up in, in the South where a lot of people are spiritually sure. wounded by f- fundamentalist Christian perspectives. And uh, and so I had that. Mm-hmm. I think I rejected a lot of the ideas that were from my childhood and then I rediscovered them later right. after a lot of exploration. So I did a lot of, um, I've done a lot of spiritual seeking. Yeah. I've sought out, you know, Zen Buddhism and I've sought out understanding more about Judaism because of its history in right. my family. And I've uh, sought out uh, understanding more about um, progressive Christian sects and, and different things like that. And uh, other kind of, you know, what m- more, I would say, pagan type traditions. Sure. And, you know, I've, I've really looked at all of that um, and encountered a bunch of those different things along the way and felt drawn to different things at different times in my life. Hmm. And there are other times where I've really doubted the existence of God. And I think grappling with that hmm. um, is an important construct of, of spiritual growth. Um, one of the things that I've really come to appreciate is, uh, James Hollis says this, that that spiritual maturation demands mystery. Yeah. Um, that some of the early notions I felt real certain about, um, you know, I think the longer you stay sober, the the more you learn and the more you know, the less you understand. And the more the more you're able to deepen into uncertainty as a form of maturation that growing up 
means we don't have all the answers. Yeah, I get that. And and that path to spiritual satisfaction, let's say, mm-hmm. is meandering and it goes around corners and it, it goes up and down. You know, for, for me, one of the things I've had to try and realize is that if I believe myself when I say I am a spiritual being having a human experience, then the spiritual part of me would allow the human to have the experiences that I have that leave me wondering whether or not there is a higher power. Does that make sense? It's mm-hmm. like, you know, the same power that allows me free will out there is the same power that makes me doubt whether the higher power is actually there running the show. So when you mentioned the ups and downs, I, I get that 100%. Yeah. So where, where has that led you then in terms of your overall spiritual quest in your life? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think where I land now, you know, uh, a good friend of mine, Matt, who's a longtime recovery guy, I'm very open about that and, oh, and yeah. as a pastor uh-huh. and started a lot of recovery-oriented church stuff and things like that. He's a very dear friend of mine. And he would say, uh-huh. you know, people always ask him, are you a Christian? And he says, well, you tell me what a Christian is and I'll tell you if I'm that. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you tell me what you think that is and I'll tell you That's what, great. whether I'm yeah. that. And, and another really dear friend of both of ours, Bill's a Jungian analyst in town and he's also a pastor. And he, uh-huh. you know, I find that I these days I'm really drawn to anything spiritually that's like just this side of heretical, you know, just like on, you know, what Matt would call it is is occupying the the inside of the outside edge of organized religion, and I like that. I find you know it, that's what drew me to Matt. He Matt used to put out these wanted posters. It was a wanted poster with Jesus on it, and it said he had long hair, lived at home till he was thirty, and got in trouble with the law. He's our kind of guy, and I love that. I I thought that was, I, I thought that's it's great, great, you know, like, that drew me in. And then I would go to those services mm-hmm. and, you know, they, it, this guy would get up and he'd say, you know, introduce yourself around, you know, you'll meet everybody from alumni of Penn State to alumni of the state pen. That's Beautiful. what's amazing yeah. about Alcoholics Anonymous too, about recovery circles is that like you, you, you'll find in the same meeting, like Sunday night, you, you'll find people that went to Harvard mm-hmm. and people that spent most of their adult life in prison that are now reentering society, <laughs> like in the same room and sharing about their histories in a way that connects them and binds them. To me, that is the picture of God that I have, right? That's that's divine yeah. presence. Um, and so Bill yeah. um, has given me a lot of language for that. He would say that he's an atheist. Um, in that he does not believe in a theistic conception of God, what he calls a sky God. And he challenges a lot of these modern notions. um, And that's what I find really like helpful is that I've gotten to reimagine things that I encountered in a new way and they've taken on new meaning for me. So maybe we can think in symbolic and metaphorical terms, maybe, and he doesn't use the word God anymore. He says divine presence. And that notion of kind of namaste that you hear is like the divine light in me honors the divine light in you. It, it's that kind you, yeah. of idea of that place, this space, even virtually, where you and I are connecting, looking at each other on a screen. God exists in this place between us, in this, this space that connects us over time. And it's profound and it's meaningful. Where where spirituality resides for me today is my goal is to live with intention. So I do a lot of contemplative mm-hmm. practice and this kind of connection. So my spirituality these days is more being present to channeling that feeling of God that is in all things and exists in all things at all times. 
Yeah, I get that. That's such a wonderful approach to integrating the spiritual aspects of the program into your overall life. You're acknowledging that. That's sometimes a tough thing to do. A lot of people who, who may be listening who are relatively new in sobriety are mm -hmm. wondering, how does one get to that point simply by AA? And I always have to say, if you're sitting in an AA meeting with other people, you're already there. In other words, if God has put us all together in the same space at the same time with that idea that God is present in his entirety within each one of us, then the very fact that we're even in a room together says a lot, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I was reminded of that old adage around the second step. And I think it's good for new people to hear that came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us is handy. That's the second step. If you break that down, it's first we just all you have to do is come. Then you come to then you come to believe. So people say, well, I don't get it. And what do we say to them? Keep coming back. So bring your ass and your mind will follow. Just, you know, show up, have a seat, <laughs> just keep coming. Yeah. And that coming yeah. leads to a sort of coming to an awakening of, uh, I think, purpose within us and an awakening of um, our understanding of our place in the world mm -hmm. and the meaning around this experience we're all having and coming together to experience. And then in that process of coming to, we come to believe that there is something that has brought all this yeah. together and that that something, um, whatever that is, can be trusted and relied upon, you know, and that's faith. And that's an extraordinary way to think of things for an alcoholic and drug addict. And I think you and I are both on the same script with regard to how we live our lives with integrity and spirituality. You've already shared a few of the gifts that you've uh, attained by virtue of being sober in AA. You mentioned a family, you mentioned a, a very good and loving marriage. You've mentioned a career that allows you to live your, your uh, passion on a daily basis and be of maximum use to your fellows. Can you leave listeners with something within your sobriety that you faced the greatest challenge that you had to call on all of your resources to be able to get through and what that looked like? I think if you stay sober long enough, you'll have many dark nights of the soul. Many of those experiences in which you feel like I can't go on, I can't go further, I'm feeling torn apart. I, I think one of the things, it, and it, it goes back to a really basic but fundamentally important kind of wisdom that comes from William, who's now deceased. But William yeah. used to say, we, we navigate the ups and downs of life without taking a drink. That's it. It's super simple. You know, keep coming back. Things will get better. Uh, keep coming back because things will suck again. That's so true. For me, the thing that has always gotten me through um, is relationships. It's it's the most important factor to my recovery, whether that's my relationship to my wife, my relationship to mentors and people who've come before me, my relationships to uh, friends and peers that kind of mm -hmm. stand beside me in the journey, um, and even my relationship to patients. I think, mm -hmm. I think my patients have taught me more about myself than probably anybody because um, I'm in this incredibly privileged position of um, mm. being a witness to people's story and to their experience. And in doing so, I learn so much about myself. I get to help them hopefully along the way, but I, I learn about the human condition and, and there's no part of their humanity that doesn't apply to my humanity. Well, yeah, and you're drawing on your own experience to help them. And, and it's a genuine experience. It isn't an experience that you learned in college or in a PhD dissertation. It's actual experience that touches their life in a way that might be unavailable elsewhere. So I, I get that. That's, a, I think, just an astonishing way to live your life. And I see you doing it.
Yeah. I just want to thank you so much for, for this interview today, Robert. I, I knew that you and I hadn't had a chance to chat mm-hmm. in a very long time. And I feel like in a lot of ways, I feel like we're caught up, but there's more to be revealed. And I love seeing you when I see you, that Friday night meeting that I see you at from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing I'm realizing now is that I'm, I'm an old timer now. And when I was much, much younger, and there, there seemed to be more mixing of the younger crowd and the older crowd. But these days, it seems like I'm noticing a lot of older guys in the meeting and not as many young guys showing up to the older guy meetings. Will you set me straight with what's going on with the younger folks that they are getting what they need, even though I'm not seeing them in my <laughs> meetings? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, that, that's help me an feel. interesting observation. <laughs> and I think one of the things that yeah. we have not yet seen, and, and so I can't kind of know like definitively what this is, because I think we're in it, is that we're in this incredible kind of axial age um, where things are turning as a function of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. The fact that you and I are meeting on Zoom, the fact that the last two years, Alcoholics Anonymous has been largely a program that existed in this virtual space in a way that it never had before. Mm-hmm. It existed, but it was like very secondary. Oh, yeah. Now it's like still kind of primary and people are returning to in-person meetings, certainly, and have been for some time, especially in Texas where, you know, COVID didn't exist after a while or whatever. This virtual space is also here to stay. And I think we're in a season of trying to understand what that's going to look like. Um, there, there are people that sobered up online hmm. in the last two years, like lots of people. They've never been to an in-person meeting. For them, Alcoholics Anonymous is this. It's a Zoom room. I don't know. I don't know what that means about the younger and the older not mixing. I wonder about technology as a medium. Um, I think we have to be really careful. I think technology has the risk of dehumanizing us, um, but it also has the 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 capacity to connect oh, us yeah. in really powerful ways. So um, we'll have to be really intentional about our use of technology moving forward yeah. as it relates to recovery. That's what I think. Well, that's a wonderful way to kind of wrap things up here, Robert. I want to thank you for doing this today. I love you. You're you're a man oh, that's, you, you know, deep within my heart as somebody who, you know, if I hadn't seen you in 10 years, I still feel like we've just seen each other yesterday. And congratulations on all the amazing things that are going on in your life and on the and the upcoming addition of five total of five kids to your family god bless (laughs) you for that kind of patience and that but obviously you've got an inexhaustible well of love to share with them and with other people and let me in turn thank you and just you're reminding me again yet again like what we said earlier love isn't divisible it only multiplies so i i love you too howard and i appreciate you and i appreciate what you're doing with this podcast and i appreciate that you've asked me to be a part of it and i'm honored to share my story here and I hope it's helpful oh, yeah. to somebody. I feel exactly the same way that you described that when I see you, I just feel it takes me back to you know 23 years of being connected in a journey where we're walking the same path. And uh, so I'm really thankful and thank you for all that you've done for recovery and continue to do. Thanks. And you're one of the men I mm. want to continue to walk it with. So mm. I'll be on that journey with you along the way. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Robert H., for sharing his story, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please leave a rating or review for the show on your podcast app. That'll help others find us. As the number of worldwide listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more people. 
Of course, you can listen to all my interviews by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for maintaining and safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all podcast production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.